Let's talk about family, a complex topic to say the least. What is your relationship to your family, to your parents, to your children? Would you say that it's positive? Maybe it's negative. Maybe a relationship doesn't exist at all. In this episode, we're going to take a long look at family dynamics, from birth to adulthood, from closeness to estrangement, how these bonds are built and how they're broken. Because when you start unpacking familial relationships and how they came to be, you find there's so much to discover. I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. Let's start at the very beginning. Even before the beginning, before a child is born. Believe it or not, parenting relationships start well before the baby arrives. How these co-parenting relationships shape up, the foundations they're built on, it has a profound impact, not only between child and parent, but between the parents themselves. Ohio State's Sarah Shoppy Sullivan studies these co-parenting relationships in depth. She focuses on how the adults in a family system coordinate their roles as parents, and how that inevitably affects the child. Our Jeff Grabmeyer sits down with Sarah to discuss her work, what she's discovered through her research, and how these findings can potentially help parents-to-be. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming in and talking to us today. You've spent a lot of your career studying co-parenting. Can you explain exactly what co-parenting is? Co-parenting relationships are those shared by individuals who have joint responsibility for raising particular children. So in any case where there's more than one parental figure parenting a child, those folks have some sort of co-parenting relationship. However, co-parenting relationships are not all created equal. Some are higher in quality than others. And high-quality co-parenting relationships are those in which co-parents support one another, they're warm and cooperative, and they do generally a good job of coordinating their parenting roles and responsibilities. Unfortunately, some co-parenting relationships are lower in quality, and those relationships can be characterized by conflict, hostility, blame, um, disparagement of the other parent, parents, parenting or relationship with the child, and so forth. So often parents have a relationship with each other. They're married, they may be married or living together. Uh, They have some kind of romantic relationship. So this is actually different than that, right? So it's not like there's just one relationship here. There's a combination of relationships between all the people involved. Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting because the concept of co-parenting emerged during the 1970s when there was a spike in divorce rates in the U.S. And there was the realization that just because a couple got divorced or was no longer in a romantic relationship didn't mean that if they had shared children that they weren't still in some kind of relationship with one another in relation to those children. And that's where co-parenting started being formally studied. And then the next sort of stage of research in the 1990s, when I started getting involved in researching co-parenting, was to take the concept and apply it to families in which couples are still together or married because of the realization that the bond that individuals have, that co-parents have, is distinct from the romantic relationship that they might share. 
because co-parenting relationships really focus on aspects of the parenting realm and don't include other aspects of a romantic relationship, such as intimacy or sexual interactions or even arguments about finances and, and things like that. I know one of the things that uh, has really kind of dominated your research in the past years is uh, a long-term research project that you and your colleagues did here in Central Ohio that followed 182 couples from prior to their firstborn child's birth through their seventh birthday. You called this the the New Parents Project. Can you tell me a little bit about this project and you know what it meant for uh, your research and what you found there? In general, in the New Parents Project, we've been very productive and we published a lot of papers using these data. I would say that a couple of our key findings are one, that co-parenting relationships actually begin to develop prior to the birth of a child. And so in one study that we use data from the New Parents Project for, we actually took data from observations of expectant couples interacting together with a doll. They did this during the third trimester of pregnancy. We video recorded them at home, asking them to pretend it was the first time they were meeting their new baby and to play uh, in four parts. Each parent play with the baby together and then put the baby, the baby, (laughs) the, the doll to sleep in a little basket and talk about their experience. And these video recorded observations were coded for aspects of co-parenting behavior, even though the parents were, were interacting with a doll. Then a whole year later, when the couple's infants were nine months old, we observed them again interacting together with their real infants. And what we found was even after controlling for a host of other factors, that how couples interacted with that doll together in the third trimester of pregnancy predicted how uh, well they co-parented their real child together at nine months postpartum. So I think that's definitely uh, one of the most interesting and novel findings from the study. Another one I would add is that we've found that early father-child relationship quality, so when fathers are engaged with their infants, they're warm and sensitive when interacting with them, that kind of behavior predicts children's social-emotional development all the way out to age seven. So basically, after accounting for you know the quality of mother-child interactions, um, that father-child interaction quality has a uh, appears to have a relatively long-term impact on children's development. So, what would be an example of a positive interaction, co-parenting interaction, while while playing with a doll, and and uh, on the other side, uh, something that might be less positive? Sure. Okay. So a positive interaction would be one parent showing affection to the other parent while they're playing with the doll or complimenting the other parent's parenting of the doll. I know that might sound kind of strange, but we really ask the expectant parents to pretend. And so one parent might say something like, oh, you know, you're going to be such a great mom. You're going to be such a great dad, like things like that. You know, so compliments or genuine smiles and warmth. On the flip side, uh, we did see some couples where the expectant parents were critical, if you can believe it, of their partner's parenting of the doll. The doll was uh, designed to be like, uh, in some ways, like a real infant. It had a floppy head, a floppy fabric head. And so, you know, you would see parents criticizing their their partner for not holding the, the doll properly and those kinds of things. And you mentioned this, that one of the most interesting aspects of your work is is your focus on fathers as parents and not just mothers. 
What have you learned about the role fathers play in their young children's lives, especially in the context of what the the mothers are doing? Sure. So fathers who have high quality relationships with their infants and young children definitely make a difference in their development. And again, that's over and above what mothers contribute, which we've known for a long time is very important. Um, The other thing I would say is that However, fathers differ a lot in the extent to which they're involved in parenting infants and young children. Now that is for a lot of reasons. Some fathers are really involved and just as involved as mothers are, or may even be primary caregivers of infants and young children. But in other cases, fathers are less involved. And uh, because of my interest in co-parenting relationships, those dynamics between parents with respect to parenting, one of the factors that I've studied that can influence fathers' involvement in parenting is called maternal gatekeeping. Um, And so maternal gatekeeping encompasses beliefs and behaviors of mothers that may encourage greater father involvement in parenting or discourage greater father involvement in parenting. And so some of my research has focused on the role of mothers in father-child relationships. And what we find is that when mothers are more encouraging and less discouraging of father involvement in parenting, fathers are not only more involved, but they're also uh, the quality of their interactions with their children are more sensitive and responsive and warm, uh, which are exactly the kind of behaviors that promote children's positive social and emotional development. Your most recent study kind of has extended that work from the New Parents Project in that you used a a national data set here that included uh, a lot more families, a lot of low-income families. And one of the key points that you found was that how mothers and fathers see each other as co-parents play a a role in how well-adjusted their kids become. That's pretty interesting. How did that work in, in what you found in the study? In the study, the parents each reported on their co-parenting relationship and their perceptions of their partner's co-parenting behavior. And uh, we found four patterns of perceptions of co-parenting relationships. One pattern was when both partners were like, yes, our co-parenting relationship was great, and they saw each other very, very positively. And in those families, children fared the best in terms of their social and emotional development, which we uh, gathered from surveys completed subsequent to the assessments of co-parenting. What was interesting, though, was that there was a group that we hadn't expected that emerged from the data that appeared to be more at risk. And this was a group in which the overall quality of the co-parenting relationship reported by parents was moderate, so it wasn't terrible. But fathers were markedly less positive about co-parenting than mothers were. And in these families, children's social-emotional development wasn't as positive. So uh, based on your work overall, what advice would you give to new mothers and fathers about how to develop the ideal co-parenting relationship? Okay, great question. I would say that a lot of preparation for parenthood tends to focus on buying things, acquiring things, figuring out what the birthing plan is going to be, or um, even taking, you know, childbirth education classes. A lot of those elements are important, but they don't necessarily focus on how a couple's relationship is going to change over that transition into parenthood. They don't necessarily focus on who's going to do what with respect to all the work involved in having a new baby. And 
Yet those are the areas that tend to cause a lot of conflict for new parents. So I think it's very important for expectant parents to have lots of conversations, not just one conversation, but lots of conversations about how they think parenting and co-parenting should be after the child's born and to then check in with each other frequently. I know this is difficult because <laughs> having a new baby is so all-consuming, but to check in with each other frequently about how uh, how your partner's feeling and how they're thinking about co-parenting relationship. You know, is this as they expected it to be or are they doing more parenting or less parenting than they expected to be doing? Um, I think that's really the most important thing is communication because even across, even if you start off well, right, in co-parenting, a two-month-old, co-parenting a two-month-old is very different than co-parenting an eight-month-old or a 12-month-old or a 15-month-old. So as children develop, it's really a process of, Communication and negotiation, I would say, in terms of making sure that you're still on the same page as your children grow and develop and that you're really in a position where you can feel comfortable, you know, appreciating your partner's contributions. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. I appreciate you talking about your work. Now, let's shift to later in life when children have now become adults and have greater power to shape their relationships with parents. For some, bonds get stronger, more loving. For others, relationships are strained and deteriorating. Parent estrangement is becoming more common. Rin Rizek wants to know not just why, but how this rise is redefining what family means. Rin's work at Ohio State focuses on parent-child ties through adulthood, why some are good and others are deeply painful. Jeff Grabmeyer sits down with Rin to discuss these complicated relationships, how they come to be, and how we have the power to shape what these connections are. Hi, Rin. Thanks for joining us today. When I was doing some research for our conversation, I was surprised by how much has been written in the past several years about various forms of family estrangement and how many people are, are asking for or giving advice about how to heal these relationships. Do you have a sense of why family estrangement is such a big deal in our society right now? It could be that we're talking more about estrangement now because it's starting to become destigmatized. So it might just be that the prevalence rate has been the same or consistent, at least over the last hundred years. We could kind of make a guess around that. But because of the rise of the internet, because of new estrangement groups on the internet, which I do think are, are happening, we're starting to see people talk about it more. We see people, I don't know, thinking more about becoming estranged. And uh, so I think that might be increasing prevalence, possibly. The other really important thing that I think is going on is changes in cultural norms around intimate relationships. What I mean by that is, I would say in the last 20 years, probably predating that, but especially in the last 20 years, we see a cultural change in thinking about the quality of our relationships. And that could go for marriage, friendship, family of origin, grandparents, siblings. In part, I would say because of pop psychology, like a desire to be better in our relationships, learn how to communicate better, learn how to express our emotions more appropriately. And I think that is sort of filtering into the parent-adult-child tie, where now, especially younger cohorts who are kind of coming into this moment, um, are saying, actually, I kind of want a better relationship with my parent. And if the parent isn't on the same page, that can lead to kind of tension and potentially estrangement. 
you know, you mentioned that there hasn't been a whole lot of research on, on family estrangement. Uh, but just recently, you and some colleagues did do a, one of the first national studies to, to look at trends in estrangement between uh, adult children and their parents. What were the major findings in, in your mind from what you saw? So here's the rundown of the study. We basically found, in terms of prevalence for this group of people, that um, about 6% of adult children report any period of estrangement with their mother, and about 26% report any period of estrangement across their kind of young and mid-adulthood with their fathers. So a ton more people are reporting estrangement with their fathers than their mothers. And I should say the way we are calculating estrangement in this study is that you either have no contact with one of uh, the parents over the study period for any period of time, or you have very low contact and very low quality. And these are folks that we would call near estrangement or like um, estrangement light. But regardless, that these are people who do not have really strong relationships with their parents. It seems like one of the things you're, you're finding that, that uh, in all these strands here that there seems to be more estrangement with fathers is do you have any ideas why that might be? We know that due to gender norms, due to patriarchy, and due to lots of other forces, women are much more likely to caregive for children. And this begins, of course, in early childhood, but they are more likely to have just more intense relationships, more emotionally close relationships than fathers are. Now, I don't want to make it seem like there is something inherent about fatherhood that means that fathers aren't close to their children. Lots of fathers are. But instead, we think about these sort of ways in which the, our family are structured that might just create closer bonds with, with mothers. We also know that there's much more likely to be non-residential fatherhood in for young children, and this might shape later life adult child father experiences. But I think overall it is this kind of different ways in which mothers and fathers, and this of course is thinking of a two-parent household and heterosexual context, but the different ways that mothers and fathers do parenting. And this is also where I'd like to go back to the generational differences, because this again is a cohort of people who are, you know, um, in between their 40s and 60s of parents. We have a new generation of parents, in particular of fathers who may parent differently. And I think that's really important that we look at that generation and their parenting style, it may be that we see less fathers estranged from their children um, in newer cohorts. Are these child-parent estrangements normally for a lifetime, or are, are they more short-lived? It's a great question. So one of the cool things about this data is it's longitudinal. So we were actually able to track everybody from 15 on. And what we found actually kind of did surprise us. We found that for the vast majority of people, estrangement wasn't long-term. It um, was usually just for one wave. In fact, especially for mothers, about 80 or so percent of uh, people who were estranged from their mothers actually started contact again and had increased relationship quality in subsequent waves of, this, of the data. And this is true for fathers as well, just about almost under 70% of people who had periods of estrangement with fathers also reconnected with their father in later waves. Do we have any idea of what the most common causes of estrangement are? So for children, children, perhaps not surprisingly, cite the negative characteristics of their parents. So how they perceive their parents and their childhood in not so positive ways. And typically what's kind of 
articulated by adult children about parents includes physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, general mistreatment, poor parenting, homophobia or transphobia, parental favoritism, and parental incarceration. There's also some literature that suggests that some money and inheritance causes estrangement and rifts for children from their perspective. From parents, they often see that it's a child's romantic partner choice that causes estrangement. Um, So not only the choice of a partner, but perhaps also that the partner pulls children away from their family of origin. Parents also point to therapy that their children are undergoing that is causing estrangement, that therapists are encouraging children to estrange from um, them. And there's also these sort of notions of the child turning on them, that something has happened and they can't really explain why the child no longer wants the relationship. There's other things like politics, values, and children's life decisions that parents point to as causing estrangement. So these are like the moments or things that people say causes estrangement. And I think they're really important. The disconnect is quite clear, right? The the different generational disconnect. What I think is happening today is changes in our understanding of what the parent-adult-child relationship should be. You talk about this in terms of what you call compulsory kinship. So people feel like they have to keep their ties with their parents? Compulsory kinship is... When we talk about kind of these big picture structural forces in sociology, what we're talking about is the water we're swimming in that we can't actually even see. So there's sort of these deep-seated cultural belief systems about what family is and what the parent-child tie should be. And in the book, we really talk about the ways in which not only relationships with parents and children, but also siblings and grandparents and all the other family of origin relationships that we have are held together by compulsory kinship, by the expectation um, that these ties are maintained, which is really what makes them hard to break. And, And most people's values are not to break them. Obviously, it's great to try to heal relationships with parents that may have become estranged, but but even if you can't, that's okay, and that there are ways to build relationships, to build uh, new kinds of family, even without the family of origin. Yeah, I think this is a really important message. People really do try to stay connected to their family of origin, but sometimes it doesn't work. But if we can kind of think about, first of all, destigmatizing this experience, again, perhaps like divorce, where it's a part of our, our relationship, sometimes they don't work, we can form new bonds that perhaps can be just as supportive and loving and fulfilling as their family of origin can be. I think adult children have a little bit easier time doing that. And from the people that I've talked to, because they often initiate estrangement, they, of course, are in pain. And and most people do not really want to be estranged, but that they are able to form new family bonds with people who they connect to, who they share values with, who they feel communicate in ways that are respectful to them, these kinds of things. And I think that is actually really a wonderful thing to be able to meet uh, yourself where you are and as adults form new kinds of loving, caring relationships. And so it is sort of a difficult thing to 
to suggest to say, okay, we have to accept really that sometimes relationships fall apart and we are still able to create community around ourselves despite that fact. Well, thanks, Rin. I appreciate you coming in today and sharing your expertise. Family. Family is a complex, multifaceted thing, and it changes over time. It's redefined, reorganized, and adjusted as we grow. Because when we really look at what family relationships are made of, we realize we have the ability to shape and mold connections that are most helpful and meaningful to us. And that, that is a very powerful, very crucial tool to have. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Jacob Carroza. Thanks for listening.